Hello and welcome to the programme. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Well, you're very welcome to a special edition of Mooney Goes Wild, the 11th of December 2023. It's always around this time that we ask our esteemed panel to recommend some gifts for the nature lovers in your lives. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. We are recording this programme just outside the radio centre on the grounds of RTE and along the banks of the Royal Canal and in a park near Cavendish. So our theme is out and about and I'm just waiting for Aina Nilauna to join me and our researcher Michelle Brown and they're having a little bit of a chin wag in the distance. You can probably hear them. Aina, Michelle, do you want to join me for the programme? <laughs> As you know, Aina is former president of the Tree Council of Ireland and her gifts have to do with planting trees. So Aina, the first tree we're standing beside now is a wonderful arbutus which was planted in 2001 to celebrate 75 years of RTE radio. Yes indeed, it's a lovely tree isn't it? And it's a native tree as well, the arbutus on Croncatna, the strawberry tree that people know it as. And it's an evergreen which is interesting because most of our native trees are deciduous. It's a broad-leaved evergreen, that's why it still has leaves on it now. But what's even more interesting, yeah. it has, fruit. has fruit and flowers at the same time. Now the fruit is like little strawberries, which is why it's called the strawberry tree. Now in Latin it's called arbutus unido. All the smart people said that what this means is that you could only eat one of them, you need or one only, because it's so sour and terrible. That's because they were eating them when they weren't ripe. And the Unido has nothing to do with the taste of it at all. Do you think Linnaeus was around tasting things? When he said Arbutus Unido, he meant it had only one carpal rather than two, which is to reproduct a part of the females. You need to go into sex this hour of the day. But that was where the Unido came from. And then the flowers are on at the same time. There's only little bunches of white flowers and then the strawberries. So if you let them ripen to the practically the pitch of rotting you can eat them but really they're not worth the effort they're for the birds which is what we want <laughs> and it's, look at the lovely lovely trunk on it look at the lovely kind of orangey pinky timber now mind you it's fine for RTE to plant it in front of their building they have vast acres here Derek vast hectares if you already have a wee pocket front garden I don't think I'd be planting in Arbutus they grow very big which is fine if you want a very big tree, but maybe not if you have a, a postage stamp for a front garden. No, but you're still suggesting that people might consider planting them. Oh yes, well absolutely. I mean, certainly. I mean, plant arbutus trees, surely. And I mean, there's not enough of them planted and they're really gorgeous. But you do actually need a bit of space, is what I'm saying. So I don't want people ringing in and saying, I did what she said and I planted it, mind you. But the time it gets too big for me to complain, I'll be pushing up daisies. Well, but they still, get tall, they do but get But they get big. broader than they get tall, it seems to me. I mean, I mean, they they become a big, canopy, a big yeah. huge tree, like indeed. So if you have a couple of hectares, they're great to plant because people are always planted with that amount of space. They plant things like oak, they plant things like wild cherry which are great big trees but you should consider planting the arbutus and people kind of think it's a bit it's a bit esoteric it's native it'll grow very well and it has leaves all the year round which is nice because like a lot of trees 
at this time of the year have lost all their leaves. And it's nice to have something with its leaves on. I mean, long ago, like I'm talking now, oh, 5,000 years ago, when we had the Neolithic people that came to Ireland, and they, they were the first farmers, so they were, some people grew the food and the rest of them could hang around doing things. And the people that were hanging around doing things because the hunter-gatherers, everybody had to gather their own. But if you were, if you were a, a farmer, other people grew the food and you could sit around and think. And they thought, and they thought, and they said the sun gets lower and lower and lower in the sky. And, you know, maybe one of these years it wouldn't come up at all. So they kept a great eye on it and they actually built yokes to measure it, like Newgrange with a light box. And on the 22nd of December, it shone into that box. And then on the next day, and the next day, it started going up again. And by about the 25th, it hadn't gone down any further. But this might be the year we were all so bold and so terrible that the sun just decided to punish us and not come back anymore because the sun was the god. Lou was the sun god. But it came back, it came back, and they were delighted. We got another year out of it. We haven't died a winter yet. And they went out to the woods all over Ireland where holly was abundant. Holly was everywhere and indeed ivy as well and they were the only trees with leaves on them 5,000 years ago in our native woodlands and of course with a low sunshine like today the leaves were glistening, look at the holly over there mm. and it's shining and the berries were shining and Lou hadn't abandoned them, there was life there was still life to be had in these little trees bring them in, we'll celebrate the pagan <laughs> god and we'll bring in the ivy as well for good measure and we're still not? doing it. And it was all, I mean so they only invented Christianity on Christmas just for the crack. I mean when they no, well, I wouldn't get into that no, 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 but I'm just saying when they did the records, when the census was held in Roman times, because the Romans were great at keeping all these records, the census was carried out in the month of September. So he was born in September, which is a grand time to be born, God knows. But because the Saturnalia, the pagan festivity, the darkness into light was a pagan thing with pagan gods, when Christianity came along, instead of saying, let's abolish this, they said, let's put a Christian slant on it. It's Christ's birthday and this is what we're going to do. And so Christmas then became the prickles on the holly and the crown of thorns and the blood of Christ. And then that's grand. And we continue to celebrate it this time of the year and nobody's barring it or being offended. So I thought it was a master stroke myself. But when you bring in the holly, you are adoring the pagan god Lou. Yeah. All right. Now, you want people to plant trees as Christmas gifts this year for themselves and for the nature lovers in their lives. Well, you can you can give people trees to plant and they can plant their own trees or you can have trees planted for people as gifts. And it's a great thing to do because it's there for each year, one year to the next. You can have a significant tree. You can take a particular species. There's lots of species like the Arbutus, which would be a wonderful thing if you had the space. Or you can plant smaller trees if your garden is smaller. I have a lovely spindle tree in my garden that I got as a gift a couple of years ago. And it has, you know, it's, it's not an evergreen, but it has the most beautiful pinky flower sort of a, sort of a fuchsia. Yeah, well, not quite fuchsia. It's sort of well, your jacket is fuchsia. Yeah, well, it's kind of it? like that. Yes, <laughs> it's, but it's not a bright red. It's a lovely pink little berry that we have on that one. That's a lovely one to plant in your garden, and that's something where you could do if you had a small garden, for example. Or indeed, you could plant the hawthorn and get a berries and get the flowers. Or you could plant blackthorn, which is a lovely one to have. Because people tend to think, well, a tree has to be a tree. You could plant a birch. Birch is tall and elegant, gets quite big, but it's lovely, elegant sort of a tree. And even in the winter, with no leaves on it. It has a lovely shape, a lovely elegance, and it has maybe if you get a silver birch, the bark looks very nice as well. So that's something you could do. And if you have no landing and live in an apartment, you know, you can have a tree in the flower pot for a wee while, but you know, after about a year, it's too big in the flower pot. So there are various places that will plant a tree for you like for example the Tree Council of Ireland if you go on their line and plant a tree you make a donation the tree is planted you get a certificate and the donation which is 60 euros or something like that not a huge amount will actually cover the cost of the maintenance of the tree as well and you know where your tree is and you're told and this will probably be you know in, in and a can woodland. I ask yeah. about that particular tree is it grown forever and a day it's well, not a commercial 
plantation that the tree council are being sponsored for, is it? No, not at all. No, the tree council have several places that they actually plant trees in. We have a place up in Castle Saunders in County Cavan. We have a place down in Glen Cree that the tree council plants their trees there and there's a tree council's trees. So it's, it's a tree that's going to be there forever, more or less a disease happens or the mm. wind blows it down or an act of God occurs. But I mean, they're replaced if something okay. like that happens. Well, we'll make sure we put those details on the website, rte.ie forward slash mini. Now, you've planted trees yourself on the grounds here of RTE and we're going to visit those. Oh, great. Good, we are. Good, In just, good. just a moment. But first, let's introduce now Michelle Brown, our researcher. Hello, Michelle. How are you? Hi, guys. How so are you So you've both? got some books that you're I going have. to suggest. Let's start with the first one. And this is by Vincent Highland. Okay, an old friend of the program, Vincent Highland, was instrumental in helping us to establish the camera in the nest site in County Kildare in the year 2000, where we live streamed Jackie and off, for which we won the pre-Europa in Germany. So thanks again for all your help with that, Vincent. Now he's got a book out. He has, and it's called Wild Derry Nan, A Natural History of Ireland's Greater Skellig Coast. And it's absolutely beautiful. As you know, Vincent is originally from Dublin, uh, but he would spend his childhood summers in Kerry. Mm -hmm. And ultimately he moved down there. And he's absolutely passionate about the wildlife down there. He became a wildlife filmmaker, he's an artist, and he has social media accounts under the name Wild Derry Nan, where he has these beautiful pictures. Mm -hmm. So he decided to put all of this beautiful information he's collected and this amazing amount of knowledge he's after establishing over the years together into book form. And it breaks um, everything down into segments. So you've segments on birds on moths on underwater marine life on fish on trees and it goes through the seasons and he tells different stories about the encounters he's had with the various animals he's met uh, actually dr sylvia earl an oceanographer and one of time magazine's heroes of the planet writes in the forward of the book and she says it's an urgent call for action and an inspiring message of hope oh, yeah he knows his stuff does vincent but it's a heavy book it Michelle, is it's a heavy book it is but i know that you think that books can be like family heirlooms that you pass them down oh, to absolutely. the yeah, better than diamonds <laughs> yeah so it, it costs about 50 euro you can order it online on vincenthighlandartist.com but um, you might get it till the new year so there's select shops in Kerry and one in Cork so you can get them in Khmer Bookshop or Sneem Bookshop in Waterville and Quirk's newsagent in Carasavine um, or in Trilly and also in Blarney Woolmills so uh, that's uh, Wild Dairy Nan by so Vincent Highland by Vincent Highland thank you very much indeed and Michelle will come back to us later on with uh, a couple of other suggestions for you but right now it's time to join Niall Hatch, who's out in Kilboggat Park near Cabin Teeley, looking at the Brent geese. Niall, your Christmas suggestion? A walk in the park? Well, Derek, I'm out and about in one of my favourite places at the moment, given that our theme today is getting out and about and enjoying nature. And my Christmas gift recommendation is to get out and about and enjoy wildlife, particularly the birds this Christmas. And I'm here in a place called Kilboggat Park in South County Dublin, just in Ballybrack, Lachlanstown. I grew up just down the road from here. It's a place I know well. and It's a place that I love to go strolling in at this time of year particularly, because one of my favourite birds of all is present here in good numbers, right on the playing fields here in the park. Uh, and that's the Brent Goose. Now, what I really like about this park here is the geese, they're very accustomed to people, so I can get really close to them. And actually, at the moment, you might just hear a bit of noise. We're just beside the N11, the, the main road that's going, going past here. And also, there's some construction work going on here in the park. It looks like they're constructing a, a big athletics track, which mm. is great. It looks really, really nice. Um, and, but despite that, the, the geese are just maybe 40, 50 metres away from all that construction machinery, paying it no heed whatsoever, and you're able to just walk around the path and, and watch them there. We talk about going on a wild goose chase, do something that's futile <laughs> or impossible. But the fact is, here in Kilbogger Park, and at various other locations around Dublin and elsewhere in the country, 
it gets surprisingly close to these geese because the thing is they're not really that frightened of people. They breed in high Arctic Canada, a place called Baffin Island in the high Canadian Arctic. Up there they meet very few people so when they come here for the winter and they're not hunted uh, what happens is that they, they really don't see humans as being a huge danger. So when I'm watching them, they're watching me talking um, they, they're looking over, I see them glancing back over their shoulders, they mm. tend to shuffle away from you but it's actually very rare they actually take flight. Maybe now you say close Nile. how close are you? The closest geese to me now are probably about 10-15 metres oh, I would that say. that is close for geese. It is, and I can see them keeping an eye on me, but as long as I don't approach or make any sudden movements, they seem they seem quite calm. And what I'm noticing here, there's probably a couple of hundred of them in front of me. The numbers will build as the winter goes on, so it's always worth coming back and seeing more of them. But within that, you'll see them in discrete little groups of maybe four or five, six individuals. And what those are, they're collections of mum, dad, and their goslings. Oh, lovely. Because what happens is, unlike most birds, which basically abandon their, their, their offspring after the breeding season and leave them to their own devices, the young geese, they stay with their parents throughout the whole winter. They migrate all the way from Canada to Ireland with them, and they stay in those groups so when I'm watching now I see the juveniles the youngsters feeding away while mum and dad are just keeping sentry duty keeping watch over me here the other lovely thing about this here too is because the geese are such good watch birds being so vigilant you see other birds that also tend to be fairly shy around humans coming in and feeding alongside them the classic example here at the moment would be a bird called the oyster catcher yeah. lovely black and white member of the wader family it's normally quite difficult to get close to wild waders because they're very wary but they seem to realize that these geese are very vigilant and so if danger comes they'll get warn their goslings and therefore the, the oyster catchers and the other birds will get a warning as well so it's a great place to come and see them up close too. I'm seeing some of the sort of flooded areas here because it's been quite wet recently. And I see loads of gulls, herring gulls and uh, black-headed gulls particularly. They're coming in. What they're doing is they're actually bathing Ooh. in the pools. They'll have come in just from the sea. So Kalani Bay is just a stone's throw from here, very close. And usually once a day, what the gulls will do is they'll come into fresh water to bathe um, because they want to get the salt water off their feathers. So that's what they're doing here in the puddles. Can I ask you a real birdie question, Niall? Of now, course. I'm not a birder, as you know, but the birders will appreciate this. I know notice at this time of year some of the oyster catchers you're talking about there have a little white bar, a kind of crescent shaped bar under the cheek. That's right, that's right. But I'd never noticed it before. So it's, it's only something you see on oyster catchers in the winter. Oh. So sort of like they don't winter. all have it. That's right and nobody quite knows why. It's uh, it's only some of the oyster catchers show this sort of white flash on the side of the neck. Mm. You know, waders are often difficult to identify. The oyster catcher is easy though because it's black and white very, very strikingly so. But in the winter some of them but not all have this extra flash of white on the side I wonder of the is neck. that where Nike got their inspiration? <laughs> <laughs> it does look like that, that swoosh. You're absolutely right. And maybe that's in keeping with the athletics track. Maybe that's the <laughs> Well, is it an athletics track? I've driven by there. I've seen them do some work, but... I, I genuinely don't know the shape of it. It looks like that, that kind of... Yeah, uh, yeah it, it looks like it. It's an incredible place, though. I believe it's huge. It is really, really big. Great amenity for the local area, not just because of the birds you get here, but also for, for sporting facilities. My nephew, Thomas, he plays football here a lot, so I come here to watch him. And there's many, many playing fields, which the geese love to feed on and to fertilise with their droppings and all of that. But it's also, it's, it's very nicely planted as well. Yeah. So you get lots of song birds um, especially in the summer the donk horse here is quite pleasant as well but now listen not everybody lives in the capital or in the suburbs so a Christmas gift just for the people who live in that part of Dublin? Is that what you're suggesting? No, not at all. <laughs> I, I would suggest that people should get out into any natural spaces near them. Uh, in Ireland, we're actually blessed with lots of green space close to our population centres. And it's something that I would recommend that anyone would do. I think a lot of people even who might live in this area, particularly who are driving along the N11, for example, might see the gates to the park. They'll realise that this wonderful facility just off that main road. Uh, and I think that that's the case across a lot of Ireland. And Jim Wilson recently was talking about uh, Harper's Island in Cork, mm -hmm. another great place, very accessible for 
another major city uh, a great place to go and immerse yourself in nature uh, I think it's it's a wonderful thing to do and, and that really is my recommendation this Christmas there's something amazingly calming and centering and it's a great way to relieve stress particularly over the, yes. the Christmas period I think we all sometimes at Christmas need a bit of a break that's why our theme is get out and about and enjoy nature now Noel with your Birdwatch Ireland hat on you another gift could possibly be membership to Birdwatch Ireland or any NGO for that matter that's right so uh, charities like Birdwatch Ireland really need support we are in the midst of a biodiversity crisis let's be, be, be frank and the fact is we're learning more and more particularly since Covid nature gives so much to us it's really important this biodiversity is not just something that's nice to have it's essential for our well-being and more and more people are realising that but it doesn't come for free we need to support the organisations that in turn support nature and so joining Birdwatch Ireland as a member makes a huge difference you also get a lovely welcome pack when you join you get to go to hundreds of events throughout the country we have branches all over Ireland it makes a big big difference and, and there's new people coming in new beginners at every single event it really is fun more and more people are turning to nature and you know it's a great way to give back but also then to keep that gift going it makes a great gift for young people as well it, it's really great there's so many children and students out there who are crying out for a connection with nature something that in previous generations maybe we took for granted but nowadays a lot of us are quite divorced from nature I think we need to restore those connections now you have an online shop and something I must get myself is some uh, hanging feeders and some bird feed and that's another suggestion from me to you the listener put hanging feeders in your garden enjoy the birds coming into the garden particularly on a miserable day and you have nothing to do and you don't want to go out and you're sitting there with a cup of tea in your hand you're looking out the window and there are the birds entertaining you for well almost free that's another idea and that's something you sell in the shop apart from books and binoculars and everything else really Derek it makes such a big difference people get captivated by this and there's so many people I've spoken to over the years hundreds of people who thought you know I don't really know if I like wildlife that which is kind of interesting maybe for the kids we'll put a feeder in the garden and before you know it usually within a couple of hours they're absolutely hooked because it's like a nature documentary in your own back garden you get to know the birds you get to see the squabbles you get to see the literal pecking order who's the, who's the top bird and who pushes the other ones out this is coming and going all the time in your garden and people really do get hooked on it and from there it leads people to doing things like our, our annual Irish Garden Bird Survey people tell us how addictive that is but then you're feeding the data back and that's a great, another great way to help us to help the birds and they really add so much colour to our lives there's so much to be gained in terms of mental and physical health from engaging with nature in this way and it's something you can do in your own garden or even you can get these adhesive uh, sucker cup things you can yeah. put a feeder on your apartment window anywhere you are in Ireland you will find birds and you can feed them and you'll find places you can stroll so this Christmas get out and about celebrate nature be it in your own garden in your local park or in a nature reserve so your suggestion, your gift to the Mooney Goes Wild listeners is a bird, birds, well in particular the Brent Goose, the Dublin Goose as Richard would say, even though it comes here during the winter time and heads all the way back to Arctic Canada. But at any rate, now that's what you're suggesting. Now that's not one of the birds that appear in the 12 days of Christmas. We've been making a radio programme about this, <laughs> which is going to be broadcast on Christmas night on RT Radio 1 from 10pm and it's really lovely if you want to hear Aina Nilana sing oh my goodness does she do a great rendition of the 12 days of Christmas <laughs> well Aina of course had a number one hit record in Ireland she so did right, yeah. <laughs> not many people can say that and I'm looking forward to that and yeah of course you, you do have the, the geese are laying in the song but the fact is that Brent geese don't breed in Ireland so they wouldn't be laying ge- eggs here when they're in Ireland yeah. so they breed in, in fact they breed further north than any other bird on the planet it's oh, actually okay. amazing listen did you notice any wrens when you were out there today it's, it's very windy I'm sure there are wrens the habitat is absolutely perfect so I didn't see any but if it was a calm day the breeze wasn't blowing I'm sure there'd be dozens of them because that's the next offering we have over the Christmas period so on St Stephen's Day or Boxing Day 
for Law and Drolene. We have a special programme on the 26th of December at 7pm on RT Radio 1, all about the Wren, and it's fantastic. Tell me something interesting about the Wren, Niall. Oh, what, what, so many interesting things about the Wren. Did you know that they're the, the, pretty much the loudest song of any Irish bird in terms of decibels per gram? They can sing at over 90 decibels, which is ear-splitting if it's right beside you. They're probably our most common bird in Ireland. They may even outnumber humans on this island. Ireland's second smallest bird, isn't it? It is, that's right, after the, the Goldcrest, which is also a fine singer, but they tend to be high up in the trees. A lot of people don't notice them. And the song of the Goldcrest, although they're very good singers, it's pitched so high that it's actually the very limit of human hearing. So you might not actually hear it. Uh, with the wren, there's no mistaking it. It's just very loud. I know at Cuscany Marsh each year with Jim Wilson and, and the crew doing the dawn course, it's, it's the curse of the sound engineers there because a wren on mic just blows the whole thing out. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Nile. So we've arrived at our next tree. Aina, this is a birch tree and it's bare and baldy as you were saying yeah well exactly it's lost all its leaves that's one of three the only one that's left standing and we planted these with the late great Dick Warner way back in the 1990s when we set up Rooney Goes Wild now we set it up in 1995 and then Dick thought we'd celebrate this short-lived programme by planting trees (laughs) the trees will be longer here than the the programme and we planted three wonderful silver birch because he felt there weren't that many Dick was very well in with all the trees that are in RTE and he felt these three silver birches in front of this Montrose house which is the original house of the estate would, would set the tone lovely and so we came out one day and we planted three of them holes, dug them in, the whole caboose had photographs, probably was 1996 or 97 and with all the extensions and everything else in RTE there's only one of them left and Mooney goes wild is still standing <laughs> and here it is now, come on, lost. Now, it's, I mean, maybe we shouldn't have said that <laughs> no 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 it's there now I mean they've finished doing oh, well. all this for the moment anyway but it just shows you can always plant well in fairness we need, we need to state what happens so they put in a ramp for wheelchair access oh yeah yeah I mean the things move on and that's yep. the way but, and we got a lot of go out of it but Dick was particularly anxious that we would plant a tree that would have flowers on it for the bees and berries on it for the birds and of course the berries come out on this tree very early in the autumn you get them in September, October so by now at the end of December the birds have every last berry gobbled off it which is great so they've eaten them all up and that's again one of our native species we have two species of birch the silver birch this one and the downy birch which is a, a more ruggedy sort of a one and they're very early pioneer species on Be it's the Irish forest so places like Bally Bay and Glen Bay and things like that Behe is the Irish word for this so these are called after that and there it is. It's still standing. It's bigger than me, actually, now. Indeed, and it was only a scot when we planted it. So, if you don't want to plant an arbutus, you can plant you a can silver plant birch. You can plant a silver birch, and, and I have get one right outside yes. my front door at home. Very good. Bir- and it is beautiful. And did you plant it? No, no, it was there when the estate, well, yeah. <laughs> the estate, the estate was built. Your estate, I didn't know you had an estate. Well, however, anyway, a birch tree is very good, and again, very, very good for biodiversity. So, if you can't rise to an arbutus, well, you can go to the next letter of the alphabet and do a birch. Yeah, all right, okay. So, Michelle, your yeah. second offering of something to read over the Christmas period, and I believe there's an association with Aina. Okay, so uh, the book is hot off the presses. It's called Drawn from Nature, The Flowering of Irish Botanical Art by Patricia Butler. Yes, indeed. The botanical artists of Ireland are great and they, they do all sorts of different exhibitions and they've had done various topics. The reason the association with me that you're mentioning is because this year, just a couple of months ago, their, their, their exhibition was on the native trees and they had beautiful drawings and paintings of the native trees of Ireland in spring, in summer, in autumn, in winter. They were all laid out upstairs in the Botanic Gardens. They had a lovely catalogue, like your book, only it was a smaller one, which just had the trees in it. And yours truly came along and launched it. Oh, yeah. And I said, a card to Gael. 
and they thought I was sort of Michael O'Hare or something from the football. But Gael is the word they would think an Irish person is, but Gael is a Welsh word. And it was how the people in Wales referred to the fellows over in Ireland, the woodsmen, Gael, G-O-I-D-I-L, the way the Welsh pronounced it, was a person who lived in the woods. So the Gael were wood people, described so by the Welsh who were on the other side, 460 miles away across the Irish Sea. So when you say a card, you gale, you say, oh, fellow woodmen. And I suppose it shows how heavily wooded uh, Ireland was at that time, in that that's, case as well. Because yeah, so they wouldn't call them wood people if they weren't in the woods. Yeah, but people now, I nobody ever heard. I never heard, until I went to this conference last year about all the Celtic languages, and the, the fellows from Wales were telling me that gale was actually a woodman. And I was delighted with this, and so oh, I can't, can't wait to tell everyone about it. So you have the lovely book with, with other different exhibitions like there's flowers and there's different things but you can tell us what's in it. Patricia's an art historian and in 2020 she was guest curator at the National Gallery of Ireland with an exhibit and this is basically uh, the book on that exhibit but it's really interesting botanical art was initially a way of helping the scientific study of plants Mm -hmm. and it was about closely observing recording and advancing our knowledge and she distinguishes between flower painting to be the most beautiful and botanical painting which needs to be really accurate but of course it's possible to be both and as she says botanical painting is one of the most skilled and captivating forms of expression. Absolutely. There's a lot of detail in them there, plants, Aina. Absolutely. And they have to have the right number of carpels. They have to have the right number of stamens. They have to have the right number of petals. And the leaves have to be coming out at the right angle, which is the way the plant grows rather than the artist's impression. So they're beautiful and they're accurate. I love the botanical arts, I must say, indeed. And also women, I think, were under-acknowledged for the work they did as scientists, you know. And um, I think Patricia tries to bring that to, to light as well in this book. Yes, because when I went to launch the tree one, I met a lot of the artists there on the launch day and they were saying they actually had to go and find the actual tree itself in the state of leaf or flower or bud or whatever it was they were drawing. They couldn't just look it up or Google it or something. They had to be physically in the presence of the tree in that case. And similarly, I know it's the same with the the botanical art for flowers and that. And it really shows, but it can be beautiful as well as accurate. I think they're great. So that's Drawn from Nature, The Flowering of Irish Botanical Art by Patricia Butler. And it's €45. I got my copy in the National Gallery, but you can also buy it online. Nice, you can do two things at one time. Go to the National Gallery, have a look around, and then buy this wonderful book or other books for sale there. Anyway, well done, Michelle. Okay, let's join now Terry Flanagan and Richard Collins, who are along the banks. You sing it, Aina, of the Royal... Ta-da. Ta-da. Oh, no, I can't sing as well as you. You and Santi are doing a great yeah, turn, I, know. I notice. Yeah, yes, indeed. I want to go jingle jangle. Anyway, if they move Mount Joy Prison, they won't be there anymore. They're muttering about building it somewhere else. Oh, no, else. no, no, leave that Red, there. Anyway, yeah, anyway, Red Terry. he'll be turning in his grave. Terry, your Christmas gifts. A walk along the Royal Canal. Yes, Derek, you join us as it's just gotten that little bit windy. Richard and I, we've stepped in under a bridge here along the banks of the Royal Canal. And that's the gift that we're suggesting to our listeners. Why not get out for a walk? It doesn't have to be on the canal. We're on the Royal Canal. It could be the Grand Canal. could be any river. But get out there and enjoy the walk. Enjoy the fresh air. Enjoy the wildlife. Richard. Yes, but it's great atmosphere. I oh, love yeah. the wind. There's energy in it. There's, it's vibrant. It is wild. Not only is nature, the animal and plant world wild, but nature itself in a funny way is wild. I, I love it. I love getting out in a day like this with the dog for a couple of reasons. Number one, because there's very few people out and you have the place to yourself. You now, we have seen a number of animals already. We, we saw the cormorant there, a juvenile cormorant, and with, with the wings out. Yes, on the best day to see animals, I think. But it is this is an extraordinary place, really. It's 
kind of hallowed ground, it seems to me. If we were here in 1847, 1,450 people would have passed from Strokestown yeah. going to the ships in Dublin. They were ousted from their plots by a fellow called Dennis Mahan, a British Army officer, and they took the ships to Canada, to Quebec, Four and, ships. And there are lovely memorials along the way from Maynooth all the way in. We saw one right where we started our walk. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and and there's, of course, the famous Hamilton Walk. I would recommend anyone to do Rowan yes. Hamilton's walk because it was walking along this canal with his wife in about 1834 yeah. that Hamilton hit on the famous formula... The Quaternions. For Quaternions. Now, you're a maths teacher. So oh, no. You, it's you, very, very complicated. But he scribbled mm-hmm. it on the bridge. He, he This came to him as he was walking down right at Broombridge. That's about six bridges down from where we are here now. And the idea struck him as he was walking into Trinity College. And he had nowhere to write it down. So he picked up a bit of stone and he scraped it into the bridge. Yes. And it's still there. Well, the famous formula is I squared equals K squared equals J squared equals K squared equals IJK equals minus one. Now Now, that means nothing to us but it's still a very important rule or law. When we're talking about say three dimensional games it's still being used. It is. It is a very important development because complex numbers were available in two dimensions. We used them in in electrical engineering in fact. We were steeped in this stuff in the maths in in electrical engineering when I was studying it all those years ago. But this thing transferred it into three dimensions. Length, breadth, and height. It is extraordinary, a huge insight actually. And, and there's a lovely memorial to Hamilton down there in Cabra Station where they have his footprints in the ground. Mm. That's, it's really, really nice. I've never seen that number. Yeah, it's in the new station. Y- yes, you'll have to show me that on yeah. our next walk. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but anyway, getting back to the wildlife here, apart from the cormorant, this spot along here is one where I always see herons. And one thing I've noticed about the herons lately, that's a, is that a plane or a train sounds coming like there? It sounds very, very low as well, whatever it is. Mm. Oh, there it is. We can see it over here. Yes, it's actually an old turboprop. You don't see very many of them out now, Richard. Ooh, the old Viscounts were Yeah, the Vanguards. The first ones that I used to fly in were, were, Viper, were yeah. Viscounts. So they were, I think they're all cargo they, planes they now, had, anyway. They, they had, uh, well, no, there are still some. There's a, a, the, the ones that go to Scotland. Go to Scotland, you'll be in the turbo prop. Right, yeah, it's gone yeah. now. Must yeah. be the wind, wherever way the wind is blowing. It's completely I don't gone. Know. I don't know. So back to the heron. This is a spot here I see him regularly. One thing I noticed about the herons lately, Richard, in the last five or ten years or so, is that they're becoming tamer. Did you notice that? Yes, they are very tame. And if you go to the zoo, for instance, they're uh, cashing in on the fish thrown to the sea lions, for instance. And they're always in attendance. But when the the sea lions are fed, they move to a little place where there's a canteen and chairs and and tables, and you'll find a heron sitting on your table. I wouldn't be pushed it too far. Herons are quite tricky customers. I ring to the odd one, and you have to be very careful. Why? Well, they're ambush predators, and he's sitting there quietly in your hand, maybe a minute or two, and if he strikes, he'll strike suddenly and without warning, and he may hit you in the eye. But I don't want to frighten people with that. They tend to stand with their feet in water. It's very seldom you see them standing on the land. How long can they stand in the water? Do they get cold, or do they have any problems with that? Well, the blood going down into the feet passes the blood going back up from the feet, so... The heat uh, in the blood going down is transferred to the blood coming up. So it, 
is it's a heat exchange really mm. and it's it's efficient what is interesting about standing in the water is another thing that you know all about being a science teacher refraction mm. the extraordinary thing about the heron if you were going to spear a fish uh, if you fire at where you think the fish is you won't get him you have to correct for refraction that's the bending if you mm. put a stick in the water it bends or a fishing rod or anything like that if you put it in the water it will bend so if you strike it where you think the fish is you won't get them you have to correct for refraction and that varies remember because if you're looking down the leg of the heron there is no refraction it's vertical but if he's off to the right or left there is a degree of refraction so the heron when he strikes has to be able to calculate and know where the fish actually is that is an extraordinary achievement mm. extraordinary Hamilton would have quaternions would have been needed for that the other thing about the heron too is I've heard it said I don't think it's true I'm sure it's old folklore that the heron's foot exuded some scent that attracted the fish did you ever hear that? no I did not hear that and following that. on from that too I heard that fishermen years and years ago would take a heron's foot and put it in their pocket when well, they were going to sea to fish. That could be well, it could be true. And remember, feet are interesting. They, if you look at the little egret, his relative, his rival, it has bright yellow feet. Dreadful dress sense, mm. after all. You know, it's a beautiful-looking bird, and you see these gaudy yellow feet. Now, possibly that those yellow feet. One theory is that they are used to distract the fish. That this bright yellow thing moving distracts the fish, and he doesn't see the bill coming down for him. Do you see? So there could there is something to do with feet here, all right? Yeah, because they tend to shuffle their feet a little bit, don't they? Disturb the water. Yes. Maybe disturb some living organ, some small fish or frog that may be in the mud. Yes. yes. Uh, the heron the, the is, of course, referred to as the crane. Now, just to remind everyone, Derek, we're here on the banks of the Royal Canal, and I can hear in the background the steam train going by. That goes by a couple of times a day on Saturday and Sunday. At this time of the year, it brings the children out to Maynooth and that. Sometimes it's the Santa train. I love to see it going by. Yes, and, and of course the train, man. The train ousted the canals. Yes, that's there were, at the peak, this canal had something like 40,000 passengers a year coming along. Yeah. And a horse came along here towing the boat. And, and the, where we're standing is actually called the tow path. Now, when I was young, path. I used to think it was T-O-E path <laughs> because you were walking on it. Yeah. But in fact, it's not my father told me. It's T-O-W. It's the tow path from where the horses were yeah. pulling. Yeah, if you, if you wanted to go to Longford back then, mm. you could go in the stagecoach or you could go in the barge and the barge was a bit slower and all that but it was more comfortable I would have thought you know you could walk around and have coffee or whatever they had in those days it was a remarkable thing but they were still towed in the second world war apparently the Guinness the steam barge came in and then when the war came you had to be careful about waste of fuel so the horses were brought back and the horse would have towed the, the boats and all. I'd love to see it. Yeah. And when you consider the extraordinary achievement it was to construct mm. these, these are purely artificial and they are lined with limestone as you showed me I think further back. That limestone had to be taken from a quarry and laid down so that the thing would be waterproof. I found that out Terry in a curious way. When I was working on the swans I found signets with adults swimming around but I found very few nests on the canal and I couldn't understand this where are the nests I never saw a nest and here's the the family of swans they've hatched 
why? Well, the reason, I think, was that all along the canals, they quarried stuff out 100 metres away out of quarries. And the swans actually nest in the quarries much more than they do on the, the canal itself. And then as the signals, get, the signals get bigger, they bring them onto the canal. So this was the... I had to learn from the swans the extraordinary structure that is underlying this absolute web of limestone laid down to be waterproof so that the canal and it's permanent it's there 200 years and it's as good today as it was then it's extraordinary also about the canal too what's unusual is that it's a habitat but it's a linear habitat unlike say a field so when you have birds developing territories like swans or like moorhens or like or even the dragonflies or that it has to be along the length of it which means that they're going to be more spaced out Yes, uh, they do. And the bridges, of course, and that locks provided. Mm. I noticed the swans obeyed the rules of the locks. They had a territory up to this lock, and the next foot of territory began beyond the lock. Okay, so the territory uh, physically was stopped and started at the locks. It was, yes. Uh, and, of course, some of the locks are very far apart. Others are quite near. But that was the swans seemed to observe that crudely. Maybe I'm imposing my ideas on the poor swans, but I, I think they did use the, the landmark to define their territory. Well, there will be no lock along the stretch that we're walking today because I think it's the longest stretch of the Royal Canal that doesn't have a set of locks. So I think the last lock was down in Blanchardstown and the next one, it's out near Maynooth. So it's it's a really long stretch. The other thing people should remember too about canals is you did mention that they were man-made as distinct from rivers, but the water in them, it doesn't flow. We look at it here today, that's the wind that's blowing it along, but it doesn't flow. It's at, a, it's at the same level all the time. And again, that's important for certain species because it is level, like, for instance, pond skater. So it is a different habitat to all of the other habitats that we would come across. And the water is the cleanest. I used to keep tropical fish at one stage. Right. I kept them for some years. I tried to breed them, but I was most unsuccessful. I wanted to have a self-regenerating aquarium, but it failed completely. But the only place where you could get really clean water was the canal. The canal's water was pure. It came from streams and things. There was a feeder. The feeder, I think, uh, in this case, the feeder is... It was down in, I think, Loch Owl. Loch Owl is the feeder for this place. Mm. And it's a spring lake. It's a bit... uh, There's a lot of nutrient in it, I think. But it's reasonably clean water and it's very clean and therefore this is the cleanest water around. Maybe I was totally misguided, but it worked and the fish survived. They didn't breed, but they did survive. Well, I did something similar, but it wasn't for exotic fish. What I did was for, for, for frog spawn. I would always collect frog spawn in January or February. And rather than using tap water, which is absolutely no good for them with the chlorine in it, I would use the water from the canal. I would always have the, the frog spawn then developing into the tadpoles and into the young frog on the desk in school. Well, you're a teacher, so you had a dispensation, Terry. I better add that in. Yes, well, that's that's true. Uh, I was allowed to take. You frog can't spawn. just take frog spawn. Okay, bear that in mind, and also be careful when you're walking along the canal. Yes, indeed, you yeah. do have to say these things, and you, you mustn't fall in either. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, it's quite a good environment. Lots of water weeds. The swans love the swans love that because they were big enough. To get down to it, you yeah. see, the, small, the, the canal is quite deep. It's not very deep, but it's too deep for a lot of things mm. to pluck the weed up. But 
for the swan he could get down a metre and a half and he could grab the, the uh, and feed on it excellent habitat yeah Elodia was not the classic one that grows here in no, the it, pond yes. not this time of the year but in summertime it would be completely covering the bottom of it and fish can hide it and there's quite a lot of fish here in, in the canal there are we have about 24 species of fish in Ireland coarse fish mainly but there would certainly be uh, be perch there would certainly be eel although the poor old eel is almost gone uh, there would be roach maybe rudd Anyway, Kerry, you probably know something. You probably have seen lots of fish caught here over the years. I would have seen a lot of people fishing here, and you're allowed to take the fish from it. You don't need a licence to fish. Uh, the inland fisheries, they, they restock it every now and again. And what I've actually seen them down on this stretch of canal is the electrofishing, when they want to, to check to see what the numbers are like and the movement of fish. And I remember at one stage with um, John Caffrey, and what they were doing, they were taking out the fish, and they were actually introducing an electronic device into the fish. Mm. And they had these posts along the canal. And as the fish moved up and down the canal, this post was able to read the movement of the fish. So they do a lot of work with the fish, monitoring and maintaining the numbers of fish here. And I've certainly seen pike here as well. And reasonably sized pike as well. Yes. Now, Derek, Aina was talking earlier on about planting trees. And certainly as we walk along this stretch of canal here, and the further out we go, we're seeing more and more trees. In closer to the city was more hedgerow. But as we come out here, we're looking out at these magnificent ash trees, a native tree, and the commonest hedgerow tree we have in Ireland. Yes, a very important tree, a most useful tree in all kinds. It's the most flexible of the yeah. trees. Very good. Things from hurleys to spade, handles to fencing, all kinds of things were, were made from ash. Ash is very marvellous wood, great tradition of, of ash keeping, you know. And, I, and along the canal, it seems to me, you get a, some ash and some willow. That's the main, mm. they seem to be the main trees looking Hawthorne. around that, that you see along here, you know. The other thing about the ash at this time of the year, of course, it has no leaves, but what it has are those, those seeds. The seeds on the ash tree, they stay on the tree all year round, and they're mm. called keys mm. because they look like those old keys that were used for medieval locks. And then you'll see them blowing around the place in January, February, and March, and you'll get lots and lots and lots of these small little baby ash trees growing everywhere. And, of course, too, they like to, to live in wet conditions. They like, as my father would say, they'd like to keep their feet in water, and you see them along the ditches there, and they bend inwards the root bends inwards so they're ideal for making hurls or hurleys because the hurley the bottom of the hurley which is called the boss when you look at the ash and when you look at the grain on the on the hurl it's curved that gives it great strength and great flexibility yes our flexible friend uh, they're not quite rival the oak the oak is the king and the, the ash is the next one down but he's a terribly important tree and remember be careful there is a mnemonic which says avoid the ash it courts the flash do you know what that means uh, lightning lightning mm. imagine that mm. uh, they are apparently prone to lightning I don't know is that true I, I, I don't know but <laughs> I, I do know when you look at the leaves of them in summertime as well they've got these compound leaves where they look like fingers as mm. distinct from the oak which has just the, the flat leaf yes, and that yes. so it's a completely different tree altogether from the oak tree
Yes. I see the wind is beginning to die down a bit now, so maybe we might ramble a little bit further on and take our time and yes. enjoy the day yes. out. You can guide me on to your next wonder. Okay. So Derek, our gift to the listeners this year is a walk. A walk along the Royal Canal. Now it doesn't have to be this canal, it can be the Grand Canal or it can be any river, but why not just get out there and enjoy it? But do be careful. And the old triangle Tut go jingle Thank you very much indeed, Terry and Richard. Now, the final tree today, Aina, is an oak tree, and you planted this one as well. Why? Oh, I was very important in those days, Derek. You still are. Ahem. Well, it was in 2011, and it was 50 years since RTE had come to move to... The first time they, they came to here, they were in Henry Street, and then RTE came out to Montrose, started coming here in 1961. 50 years later was 2011, and the president of the Tree Council of Ireland planted an oak tree to commemorate this. And the president of the Tree Council of Ireland, for the first time, was Aileen Elona. But she's no longer president. Well, that's not how I was deposed or anything, Derek. <laughs> no, it's just you. you do a three-year stint, and by three years we're up with the last AGM, which was last May, and Cormac Downey is our current president, which is great. But the previous time I was president in 2011, 50 years since RTE moved out here, and we planted the mighty oak. And again, a native tree on there, heavy second parish in Ireland has a bit of dar or derry or something in it, showing how common that tree was all over Ireland when place names were being made up years and years and years ago. It's a Quercus robar. It is the one that has the peduncles at oak, which is the ones with the, the, the peduncles are the fancy name for stalks. The acorns are on stalks. That's why it's called that. And it's big enough now to have acorns on them. No, there's none of them in it. I'd say the jays and the rooks and the mice have run away with them all. Well, that's all good. Which is what we want again for it to be, you know, helping with biodiversity. Mm. So I have left my mark on you RTE. You certainly, certainly have, Aina. Okay, so... Three trees today, the Arbutus, the Birch and the Oak, but there are other native Irish trees people could choose. There are, of course. We have 28 native Irish trees that you could choose from, all the way from a juniper, which you could grow and throw your berries into your gin or your potsheen, if you were so inclined, <laughs> all the way up to the, the largest one, which is probably Scots pines or oak. Mm. But, I mean, there's a great range of native trees people can plant, and we should, we haven't got half enough trees, so everybody should either have a tree to plant and go out and make a ceremony of it and plant it, plant it for someone that you remember, and at these times people can be sad at Christmas because everybody isn't there any longer, and planting a tree is a way of evoking It certainly is, a great memory, idea. Yeah. You know? And they can do it on Christmas morning together, all the family. Well, indeed, or Stephen's Day, people tend to be a bit frazzled on Christmas ah, morning. Ah, when you go out, that's the best time to do it is Christmas morning. Get out and do something together as a family. And that would be taking law and all. Like I said, a leopard in the sea and giving yourself a heart attack. <laughs> go and plant a tree instead. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Aina. Your final book, Michelle. Okay, um, it's The Wildflowers of Ireland by Zoe Devlin. Oh, um, more flowers, Aina. Something else for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Zoe became captivated by flowers at a young age when a relative showed her an orchid through a magnifying glass. And she pursued this passion with vim and vigour all her life. She um, has began posting her vast catalogue of flowers on wildflowersofireland.net which is still there but she also published this little book and it's neat and it can nearly fit in your pocket and it divides 
flowers into sort of colours, categories and just makes it really easy for you to identify when you're starting on your, your journey. So like, you know, she breaks them down into the number of petals of each flower, are the clusters or spikes um, and like you know, what time of year you might find them. And what I like gifting this book to people for is because um, it's inviting people to experience getting out into the countryside and going on walks as well. Well, that's what it's all about today. Our theme is get out and about. Yeah, even you could use this book. Yeah, even I could use that. It must be good. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not, I mean, oh, contrary to the botanical artist's one where it's drawn in specific detail, Zoe has taken photographs of yeah. things as they are in the field. So you, for all you have to do, and maybe this might be difficult for you, Derek, you being a man, but you have to decide on what well. colour it is. <laughs> Men are not great at colours, you know. But you well, I knew that jacket you're wearing was fuchsia, ain't it? Well, yes, indeed. I think it's Cerise, but we'll not go there. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so you decide if it's blue or if it's pink or if it's yellow, and then you go to that section. So that it's a great way of doing it. The most, the, the most, the proper, well, not about say the proper, but the old traditional way of doing these things was to do them in their families. So if you get web in Irish flora, you start with the Ranunculaceae, which are the buttercups. And you know, where in the book is it? And they're all in their families. Here, she doesn't bother with any of that. If you have a yellow flower, it's in the yellow section. If you have a pink flower, it's in the pink section. And it makes it really easy to, to, to identify things. Because it's nothing as bad as finding something and not being able to identify it when you really want to yeah. know. And this book is great for that. And what's it called again, Michelle? The Wildflowers of Ireland by Zoe Devlin. Derek, can I be really, really cheeky yeah. and put in one more book? Um, a couple of weeks ago you spoke to Louis O'Toole about the fungi of Killarney National did, Park yes, yeah. yeah or Aina did that's right um, and just to say that's published by the National Parks and Wildlife Service but it's available to buy as um, alanhannas.com for 40 euro but it well, is we're going to have all the details on the website yeah. where people can get the books and our broadcast coordinator is Daniel Keating and you have a suggestion Daniel I, before we finish up I do yes uh, raised by the zoo by Jerry Creighton um, you know he's from Dublin Zoo but what I found particularly interesting is the book talks about all the animals he's worked with, particularly the elephants, mm. and the close relationship they have to human beings in terms of how they um, create relationships and how they teach their, their calves um, to, to kind of grow up into adults and stuff. So I found that really interesting, the close link that they have. And the name of the book again? Uh, the name of the book is Raised by the Zoo. Raised by the Zoo by Jerry, Jerry Creighton. Creighton. He's a great advert for Dublin Zoo, I have to say. He is indeed, and of course they have a great section of elephants there, Asian elephants and male and female, and you know, the whole establishment where they are and the trees that were planted and the bamboo and the whole lot you can go for a walk in the whole elephant yep. area which is which well is lots great. of people will go visit the zoo over the christmas that's what a lot of people do oh yeah well, it's a great is, experience the zoo is lovely indeed no. and lovely lights in it at the minute but obviously my grandchildren love them well that's pretty much all we have time for my thanks to ada nilana richard collins niall hatch and terry flanagan our broadcast coordinator daniel keating and our researcher michelle brand don't forget you can find all the details of the gifts suggested by the the team on the website rte.ie forward slash mooney until next week goodbye chestnuts roasting on an open fire jack frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows A turkey and some mistletoe Help to make the season bright Tiny tots 
With their eyes all aglow Will find it hard to sleep tonight They know that Santa's on his way He's loaded lots of toys and goodies on his sleigh And every mother's child is gonna spy To see if reindeer really know how to fly And so I'm offering this simple phrase To kids from one to ninety-two Although it's been said Many times, many ways Merry Christmas to you From one to ninety-two Although it's been said Many times, many ways Merry Christmas To you